Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Actung, Actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and I am joined today by Professor Lloyd Clark, incredibly eminent historian, someone whose work I've been reading for absolutely years. Um, he's the head of the Centre for Army Leadership. He's a, um, a visiting professor of a research fellow at Buckingham University. But anyway, you have many academic posts um, and also a prolific um, writer, Lloyd. You've, you've written loads of books and um, my shelves are thick with your with your oeuvre, I should say. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks very much, James. But uh, your most recent book is The Commanders, The, the Leadership Journeys of George Patton, Burnham, Montgomery and, and Erwin Rommel. But I thought, actually, you know, in all the years we've been doing the podcast, Alan and I have never talked in any kind of depth, I don't think, about Rommel. Not that I can remember. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to focus a bit on on him, if you're happy with that. Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah, fascinating figure who um, I've been looking at researching for a number of years. And I think that the, the latest book is a culmination of all of those years of really trying to get under the skin of the man. So, yeah, very happy to talk about it. And of course, you know, Rommel, you know, he's so well known, isn't he, in, in Western spheres because he was the number one general of German general that fought against eighth army in the western desert was 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 obviously there in, in on d-day and so on so he's got this sort of almost cult-like figure isn't he and of course he was there in 1940 as well sort of cutting a dash across during the blitzkrieg over over france crossing the Meurs at uh Dinond and and kind of running rings around everyone and of course you know was 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 the opposition when they finally managed to do some sort of half hearted counterattack on the 21st of May 1940 and there he was sort of manhandling the 88 millimeters up on that hill by the farm and all the rest of it south of Arras so he's a figure that kind of crops up in the, in the British and I suppose to a large extent American story of the second world war as well um you know Catherine Parson you know that was him there he is again and of course you know he's sort of slightly martyred by what happens to him at, at, in, in 
in November 1944. Yeah, it's just one of those figures that, that keeps cropping up. And yet, I suppose a little bit like um, Patton and, and uh, Monty for me, the book really came out of questions I had about all three figures. But I suppose particularly Rommel, what was he doing after the First World War? Um, he, he clearly cut his teeth in the First World War in, in combat, did extremely well. But what was he doing thereafter? You know, what, what jobs did he have? Um, how was he perceived by this reforming German army? How did he get on? Who were his patrons? All of that, that sort of thing. So I think um, clearly there's an awful lot to be learned um, from that period as to the leader that he became, the field marshal that he became, yeah, yeah, yeah. the man that he was. Yeah. So, yeah, fascinating Fascinating man, and uh, yeah, obviously trying to forge a career during a, a difficult period. So let, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning with Rommel. Then, so he's 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 a Schwabian. So you know he's in the southern part of part of um, of Germany. I mean, you know, he's not from sort of classic Prussian aristocratic stock, is he? No, uh, sort of un, the unfashionable South, really, in terms of the the German army, um, and also from an unfashionable sort of social background himself. Um, you know, his his father was a teacher, became a headmaster. Um, they weren't a particularly well-to-do family. So middle class, um, but, so, but no more than that. Yeah, but no, no, nothing more than that. And, you know, unlike perhaps um, Patton and Montgomery, you know, these weren't, this wasn't a, a family. The Rommel family wasn't a family of outstanding achievers. You know, there was something within Erwin Rommel that, that sets him apart. Know, really pushed him forward. Yeah, he was a, a self-starter, if you like. Because he is incredibly um, ambitious, isn't he? You know, he's competitive, he's ambitious, he's got that drive. Yeah, I, but, you know, that ambition, I don't think, really comes to the fore in terms of his own personal fulfilment until later in his career. I think very much what was startling during the research of the book, that this, this man just tries to be as good as he can be for personal fulfilment, but more importantly, for the German army and more specifically for his men. And I think this during the interwar years when he feels I can really have a, a presence and an influence in the wider German army, that he begins to think, OK, maybe by pushing myself harder and further forward by getting you know, very powerful patrons, I can make a real difference. And I think it was therefore an ambition of a different type to many of the figures that we could refer to in in this realm um he was very much someone that you know started sort of um yeah more more um about just having a really interesting job and, and doing his bit i mean you know how does he get to become an officer in the first place because becoming an officer you know before the first world war it's it's it's, it's a process and a half isn't it you don't just sort of yeah. you know you've got to pass all sorts of exams you've got to be a kind of an nco first you've got to get through that stage then you have to go you know you're fun and junker aren't you and then then you go to creed right. school or war school and then eventually you get get promoted i mean what, what how is there anything in those early years that kind of sort of marks him out i mean what what, what is his beginnings as in, in in his time in the military well he starts off very much pulling on whatever um contacts his father has as a reservist in the german army um, he looks to see whether he might be able to sort of gain a foothold on that that uh, first rung of the officer ladder. And he eventually um, gains a place um, through interview, through examination, as everybody else does. But certainly he's not a first choice student. Um, he gets that opportunity through his endeavours and obviously his, his um, skills and personal abilities. Um, but he's someone that's really looked at quite closely. And I would say he's, if you like, in modern terms, what we'd call a risk pass. 
Okay. You know, somebody that yeah, yeah. You know, doesn't come from the right background, speaks with the wrong accent, yeah. um, just about fulfills the requirements. But let's watch him closely. We wouldn't be surprised if he drops out. But he makes it, and he makes it due to all the, the reasons that any army would want a good officer because he's a damn good leader. And um, he, he pushes himself forward from that point. And critically, during the courses, being identified as a potential leader, being developed as a leader, it's not so much his seniors that are really looking at him with a view to can he lead. The German army really devolves that responsibility down to his fellows, the, the team that he's leading, and says, what do you think of him as a leader? And they come back wholeheartedly and say, this is a great man. This is a person that we would follow. Well, perhaps not quite anyway, anywhere, but certainly in the circumstances in which his development is taking place during exercises, etc., and um, he gets the nod on on that basis. But but you know any any officer worth his salt will will not ask his men to do anything that he wouldn't do first and leave from the front and all those sort of things. They're, they're to a certain extent they're sort of a given. I know it's, not everyone does it, but yeah. but you know if you're a half decent officer that that comes as better. So what what is it about Rommel in his early years in the first, during the First World War that kind of marks him out? Is it quick thinking? You know, is is it just a natural charisma? What, what is his command style that that gives him that edge? I think two things that are actually quite complicated. The first one is being very professional, knowing his business, um, understanding that he needs to make decisions under pressure, yep. planning extremely well, and perhaps planning and thinking differently to give his troops a, a, a fighting chance. And that links to the second point is he understands his men. He right. cares for his men. And he thinks differently partly because he wants to ensure that as many of them survive contact as possible. Okay, so he has a, he does he does have a kind of sort of a, a, a strong streak of humanity and care for his men. Yeah, all those sort absolutely, of and the humility that goes with it. You know, and often we don't see in senior officers across history a great streak of humility. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to look at in this book is. Was there a humility in these people, uh, and particularly in Rommel, during their junior years? And this is a man that had the humility to say, I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I'm going to devolve decision-making to you because you know what? You know the men perhaps better than I. That's interesting. You've been in uniform for longer than I. Yeah. I will take responsibility for the decision, but do inform me. Yeah. You know, you've got a voice challenge me even and i think that that was really appreciated and perhaps not so unusual for the german army but that would certainly be very alien for the british and the american armies but i think even so you know rommel really pushed the boat out to listen to everyone and understand their points of view and where's he serving in the, in 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 the first world war i mean obviously he's in he's in italy isn't he and uh, for, for a large part yeah. and that's where he gets his his blue max yeah well he, he um cuts his teeth on the western front yep. um um down down south against the French. And then he is given the opportunity to, I suppose, play to his own interests and strengths, which is mountain warfare. Right. Um, you know, before the First World War, he's very much an outside man. Yep. You know, enjoys riding his motorbikes, but he enjoys going for very long walks, climbs in the hills and mountaineering. Right. And um, what I mean by that is literally harnessing up and using ice axes. Wow. So, you know, he knew his way so around. So this is not a good top. this is not a good kind of walk in the hills. This is proper mountaineering. This is proper what we call proper mountaineering. And um, you know, there were there were many mountaineers around, but how good were they as leaders? And it's quite interesting. The German army looked at various mountaineers and thought, 
you know, what can they bring to this particular party? But they identified Rommel, I think, as someone that was not just out to conquer mountains and gain glory for himself, but actually was known to be a great developer of mountaineers, a great leader of mountaineers. Right. And he could bring something into the military sphere. You know, and again, it's interested on, on reflection um, with what we do in the British Army today. You know, adventurous training is absolutely key to the developing of leaders. You can learn a great deal about people. You stick them on, you know, the top of um, the Black Mountains or the Cairngorms in a, in a in a snowstorm. You know, how do they react? And, you know, so this was part of um, Rommel's development that, if you like, had already taken place that they could take advantage of. And so, as you say, he ends up in Romania, in 1916-17 and then goes to um, Italy in 1917 and 1918 and does just the most remarkable thing. You know, the Alpine Corps see him as a man that they will go to in most eventualities to lead the way. Um, you know, you know, once again, it's the Rommel detachment. You know, it's not a number, not num numerically identified. It's known as Rommel detachment because, you know, everyone across the Corps knew exactly what Rommel could do. They wanted to be a part of his detachment more than any other. Uh, and, and there is, a, there is, but there is also a boldness of action, isn't there? That kind of sort of not, not worrying about your flanks, just going for it, that approach. Yeah, if you want to understand the sort of um, commander and leader that Rommel was going to be in France in 1940 and then the desert, you know, have a look at what he was doing in the, uh, in the mountains in 1916 to 1918. You know, do look at his book, um, Infantry Attacks, yes. which is about, about that time. And he's actually really, it's not a book about himself in as much as it's a book for the German army to learn from at that particular time. The fact that it became, if you like, a bestseller was, by the way, very nice for, for Rommel and helps his career. But, you know, it, it's all about decisive thinking. It's about challenging the norm. It's about doing outrageous things extremely well. Um, it's being successful, but it's also about failing and learning from those failures. And it comes back to that humility again. Um, but what we're actually talking about is him um, writing a book that the German army could utilise um, in, the, in the 1930s. And what that book shows is the way in which he was incredibly bold. He did take decisive action. He did look after his men. Um, but he was also outrageously successful in diff difficult circumstances. And success, I think, breeds success. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, he learns from his failures. He has that humility. Um, when things go wrong, he doesn't just, you know, brush them aside. He thinks, how could I have done better? Right. How could the team have done better? How do we improve? In a very modern way. And again, in, in ways that I don't think were particularly common for any army of the time. So he's, I mean, you know, in, in terms of, I mean, how do you gauge whether someone's deserving of the top gong? Or not. I mean, it's always a bit difficult. But 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 by any standards, his his Paul and Marie, the the Blue Max, mm. he's a worthy recipient of that. Yes, and and just so, so sorry, just so, for anyone who doesn't know, the Blue Max sort of goes out. Uh, when when's that finished? It, it sort of ends. Is it end with the, with the Imperial G Germany? It does that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yes. so in you yeah. know nineteen nineteen, the, the Paul and Marie is, is 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 no more. But it's it's the equivalent of the VC or the Congressional Medal of Honor. I mean, not exactly ever, but 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 sort of roughly. Yeah. Um, so you know that's a 
that's a very big deal. And if you're wanting to make a career in the in a, in a post-war army, having a blue max, as it was known, around your neck is obviously no bad thing. Yeah, you know, having been um, an outsider, he's still an outsider in certain respects, but he's also got something he can hang around his neck to say, look, guys, I've been there and done it before he even opens his mouth. I think that's really important. And although he has that humility, he fights really hard to make sure that he gets recognition. Um, the way that he often phrases that is that he wants recognition for his team. Yeah. I'm slightly dubious about that. I think certainly you know, <laughs> Rommel wanted recognition. Certainly when he was competing to get to an objective against the Prussians, the guards, the more sort of um, traditional parts of the German army that tended to be awarded a disproportionate number of, of Blue Maxes. So um, he got it, but he got it on merit, but he also used it to very great effect thereafter in his interwar career. Well, yeah, but don't forget, in the interwar career, you've got a very small army compared to what came before. You know, you've got to kind of leave, if you want to make a career of it, you've got to leave everything you possibly can to get ahead of your peers. And, and you know, you can't blame him for levering his blue max for for career advancement can you no no yeah of course not i mean think i think that the uh, you know the officer corps um is just a, a few thousand um in sort of 1918 1919 yeah. um in terms of those that are you know likely to progress you know a very small handful um and of course he continues his remarkable leadership even during that that sort of interregnum yeah. when you know Germany is sort of in in a state of shock and in ruins. It's it's not even licking its wounds. It, it's just trying to you know maintain a heart heartbeat. You know it's <laughs> yeah. an intensive care, and um, you know there is um, Rommel wondering whether he's got a future, and he's given again the most difficult of tasks. He's he's given um, the job of leading a group of raw na- uh, of naval personnel of uh, Kriegsmarine. Yep. Um, personnel who are drunk, who um, are going AWOL, who are starting fights at the first opportunity. And yet, you know, he he brings them to a point where they can actually help suppress um, some of the the riots and the insurrection in Germany. Um, And he does that quite quickly. And he does that, I'm sure, by walking into the room with his blue max around his neck and everyone thinks, okay, we've got a very serious individual here. But then he goes about his leadership in a way that anyone that had served under him during the First World War would recognise. Right. For the first time, you know, he panders to the needs of his men. He finds out their strengths and weaknesses. Um, he begins to give them little victories and they stitch together a team that rely upon each other and have some shared experiences that bind them very closely to a leader they begin to trust. Right. And all of a sudden they quite like <laughs> being seen as um, a good unit. You know, yeah, yeah, what yeah. team doesn't? You know, um, rather than drunken wrecks that, you know, do themselves and their families um, no great favours. So, you know, again, you know, he... I don't think he's doing it to so much push himself forward um, in a, in an army that is obviously going to be cut dramatically, although there, of course, is an element of that. I just don't think he's capable of doing a bad job when he's leading other soldiers. You know, it's just a natural ability he has. And um, he's successful wherever he goes during this period. Yeah, it's remarkable, really, isn't it? Because, you know, he does have the Blue Max, but but but... It's still pretty snobbish, isn't it, in the German military? It's very snobbish. And, and you know, the, the, the top tier is full of Prussian aristocrats, even though Hitler hates them and all the rest of it. And and once the Nazis come into power, you know, wh- wh- where does Rommel sit on all that? Because 
he's quite close to Hitler by the by the outbreak of the Second World War. I mean, you know, this is a question. You know, he's got, he, he's got off lightly, hasn't he? Because he because he's martyred effectively. Because he doesn't have to fight on the Eastern Front. He doesn't. He's not faced with those moral choices. So many. German commanders on the Eastern Front do face, and, and frankly, by any standards of any reckoning, fail. He's not he's not put in that position. So we do see him as a kind of you know a good German, don't we? I mean, do you do you think that's 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 justified? Do you think he's a good bloke, Rommel? Yeah, I, I, I do think he's a good bloke, and I think that because perhaps he is quite a naive and flawed human being. Okay, if we put that in the realms of politics, was he drawn to Hitler? by Hitler's politics, or maybe initially. But then, you know, so much of the German officer corps would have been. Because here's a guy who's going to say, I'm going to make us militarily great again. As as an officer, you're going to think, what's not to like, aren't you? Absolutely. I think that there is some naivety later on um, when we are talking about 1941, 42, 43, when Hitler is obviously going about his business in ways that actually begins to make the officer corps think, what have we really got here? Do we have a, a clear strategic thinker, somebody that is actually uh, capable of achieving the objectives that he initially set out? And how is he going about that? I think that Rommel doesn't think too much about the how that is being done and his position within that and some of the most outrageous aspects of Hitler's politics. He's still drawn, I think, quite naively to the charisma of the man. If you read his diaries and um, the conversations he had with others, it's not so much about the politics of Hitler. It is about what a remarkable man he is in terms of his communication skills, his ability to win over an audience um, and just that remarkable power he had in a small room to get people on side to his his ideas. He he was just blown away by that and and continues to be so until quite near the end, until sort of 1944. Mm. Um, and his diaries are full of mentions of, I'm, I'm sure Hitler's not quite as bad as I'm sometimes hearing for, from some other people. He seems a very decent man to me, which shows incredible naivety. Yeah, but... There you go. It's, it is amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, he writes beautifully. He writes, you know, his letters to Lucy, you know, they're, they're, they're charming and beautifully written and heartfelt, aren't they? And, and, and yeah. full of the weight of responsibilities of, that are on his shoulders. And he clearly feels it very keenly. And, and, and it does make it very hard, I think, to, to dislike him as a, as, as a person. You know, he, he does come across well. And I'm sure that that is part of it. You know, and and you know, there's all these you know, there's anecdotal stories about him kind of letting people off when they've been captured and 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 checking their okay and their welfare's all right, even though they're British armored officer or whatever. You know, it's all it's, it's full of those kind of stories, aren't there? Which again, sort of endears you to him. And then there's the whole thing about him, kind of, you know, at the at the end, in that sense that he's sort of possibly plotting for. To surrender in Normandy and, and and so on. Jumping the gun here a little bit, but but yeah, he's he's he is fascinating. I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a quick break now, Lloyd, and then when we come back, let let's get on to into Rommel the War Years. I think that's the way to go. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Lloyd Clark, and we're talking about Erwin Rommel. 
absolutely unquestionably certainly to the to the those of us in the west the most well-known well-regarded german general of the war i'd say i think you know bar none don't you i mean people kind of put put yeah. put von manstein on a little bit of a pedestal as well and a few others but 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 rommel's the man isn't he yeah, most definitely. Um, you talk about von Manstein, but um, yeah, we always come back to Rommel. And that's partly, of course, because of the public image that the Nazis developed for him, for propaganda. And we sort of jump on the back of subsequently, you know, for, for many decades, we've held him a high regard and there have been biographies and films, etc. So, you know, he's still vigorous in our public perception of the Second World War, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So so where is he in 1939? What, what's what's he up to? He's a, he's a, he's a, he's basically a Overlook, you know, he's, he's command of one of Hitler's bodyguard, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. He goes to to Poland as as commander of a uh, security company. Yeah, um, and that's really where he comes into the into close contact with um, Hitler. They'd met once before, I think, five years earlier when um, when um, Rommel was a uh, battalion commander, but only briefly. Um, but I think it's his book, Infantry Attacks, that raises Rommel's profile. Yeah. Um, it's said that that Hitler had a copy. We don't know whether he read it or not, but certainly it's he the had sort come of thing that attention. Hitler would it would appeal to Hitler. Someone yeah. being kind of striking and daring and bold, and you know, thinking outside the box. That's all the kind of stuff that Hitler loves, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, but he was clearly brought to the attention of Hitler as well. Somebody who is trustworthy. Um, somebody who is a, an outsider. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah, Hitler, yeah. somebody that he could relate to and trust as a, you know, the head of his security bodyguard. You know, that trust and understanding is developed during their relationship um, during the, the Polish campaign. Hitler begins slowly to ask Rommel for some advice as to whether he should go to a certain place or not. And mm -hmm. Rommel comes back, you know, be bold. You know, you've got to be seen. The, the news cameras will be there. And of course, Hitler takes... That advice, it all works out extremely well, yeah. even though um, Rommel um, then becomes a pariah to some of those that are closer to Hitler politically because this upstart has sort of got Hitler's ear. Um, and I suppose that never really ends until um, uh, the end of, of Rommel's life. Yeah. But they, they begin to have a close bond of great mutual respect during that, that period. And it ends, of course, in early 1940 with... Um, Rommel being promoted to Major General yep. and to the command of the uh, 7th Panzer Division. And, of course, you know, from then his career just flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he is... He is I mean, I always kind of slightly feel that... that, that I don't know. I've, I've spent so much time looking at Rommel. I mean, obviously not as much as you, but I've spent a lot of time. You know, I've covered him in North Africa. I've covered him in 1940. I've, I've looked at what he's doing in Italy, both at the kind of start of the Italian campaign, his exit from that, then, of course, Normandy and so on. I kind of wonder whether 7th Panzer Division, um, which he's commanding in 1940, is is kind of the zenith of him as a commander. You, you, you I think, would disagree. But but I don't know. The thing I always kind of think is when, you, when you're talking about a general, you know, particularly high, someone who, who reaches field marshal rank or, 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 or you know, certainly three- or four-star general, They've got to kind of understand the three facets of war. They've all got, they've got to understand the big strategic picture and the constraints of that, and also the ambitions of that. They've obviously got to understand the tactical picture and be be tactically flexible and innovative and and sharp and all those sort of things. But they've also got to understand the operational level. And I always wonder whether Rommel, you know, time and time again, he kind of overreaches and just sort of pushes things a little bit too far. And and 
but but in 1940 it's kind of pitched perfectly you know you know the 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 combination of of dry thrust kind of not worrying about your flanks chutzpah charisma clear leadership you know you don't know all your men if you're a divisional commander, but you're 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 a very visible commander if you're a divisional commander on and someone cut from from Rommel's cloth. By the time you're getting to be a, a field marshal or you know an army commander or even a corps commander, yes, you can still be visible, but you're not as visible as you would be as a divisional commander. You can really carry your 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 your, your subordinate commanders when you're a divisional commander in a way that I guess you can in a, 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 as an army commander, but a much more sort of intimate way, can't you? I suppose is what I'm driving at. Yeah, I, I don't think we pulls apart actually. Now thinking, James, you know, I would very much put Seventh uh, Panzer Division um, right up there as one of um, the greatest successes that that Rommel had. You know, the crossing of the Mers. It's it's just a brilliant operation, isn't it? And and the the leadership yeah. he shows going across on the raft on that you know on that morning is it morning or afternoon I can't remember but you know there's still gunfire yeah. around there's French snipers on those cliffs above Dinant when he when he crosses on the raft you know there's you know he he puts himself in danger but you know Mark Clark's book is called Calculated Risk you mm. know, never has that been applied better than to someone like Rommel where where, where the risk yeah. absolutely is calculated but but he but he is always prepared to risk himself he absolutely shows the way doesn't he yeah and if you think about the fact that he gets promoted to major general in february yeah. the invasion is in may yeah. and he's an infanteer taking on an armored division yeah. a premier armored division yeah. you know it's it's fascinating how he does that and he does it in the way that he's always gone about his business it's gaining trust allowing those that know better than him to get on with their jobs yep. and to make really well-judged decisions, but never hiding behind his ability to be three, four miles away if he wanted to be yep. by putting himself on the bridge with the 88 millimeter guns on the high ground yeah, yeah, with yeah, his yeah. binos. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I can't remember the number of times when during that France 1940 campaign, I totted up, he should be dead by now. Yeah. Well, there's a moment, isn't there, just after crosses the Mers, <laughs> when he's on the he's on the yeah. high ground above the above the Mers on the western side of the Mers, and they're pushing forward. And isn't he in a he's in a armored car or half track or something? I can't yeah. remember. And, he, and they they get sort of slightly ambushed, and the and the car yeah. isn't yeah. the car the the vehicle he's in run off the road or something. And and you know he absolutely should be dead then, and and he gets away with it. You know, it's it's just yeah, his ADC dies in his arms. That's it. Um, That's it. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, I mean, what would we have thought about Rommel had he died, you know, just after crossing the Meuse? Um, we'd have probably thought, well, that was a bit foolhardy. You know, what was a German <laughs> commander doing there? But, you know, this is the essence of whatever you want to call German operational methods at the time that we know we tend to talk of as Blitzkrieg. And I think that w one of the factors that plays into his success is that he didn't really know much about armoured warfare and was sort of making it up as he went along, just as the Germans were. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, ca I can be bold. There are no rules here. Well, that's um, the point, isn't it? There's no rules. There's no rules. You're, you're making it but, but also you're applying what you know about, you, you know, infantry tactics, striking forward, being bold. You know, it's who dares wins, isn't it? It's the same, it's the same sort of principle. It's, it's, it's by by if, if you've got everyone with you, if you're going follow me, boys, and you and you look around and everyone's still behind the hedge, you've got a problem. But if everyone's actually with you, that confidence, that 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 chutzpah is 
incredibly infectious, isn't it? it you know, you you yeah. you are going to take people with you, and particularly when you're coming up yeah. against the French and Belgians and stuff in 1940, who are absolutely the opposite of that. You can understand why that sort of carries the day, and and, and also he yeah. he seems to instinctively understand how you use your your all arms unit. And I think the interesting thing about the Panzer Division is that it's not just stuff full of tanks; it is a it mm. it is an all arms motorized formation. That's yeah. that's its USP, mm. you know, with its motorbikes, with its reconnaissance vehicles, with it, you know, with its half tracks and armored cars, with its with its with its lorry infantry, with its Panzers, of course. Mm. But also its artillery and anti-tank guns, and and, yeah. and it's and it's it's that combination, isn't it? And what Rommel understands is about drive. It's about showing intent. It's about having confidence in your own ability and the ability of your subordinates to deliver what you need to do. And whether you've got just infantry or whether you've got a combination of all arms under your command, the principles behind that are exactly the same. So I suppose. Although it is remarkable on one level that he's taking over a Panzer division and, and, and leading it with such incredible flair, panache, and confidence, on another level, it's kind of the principles are the same, and so you'd kind of almost be surprised if he didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, he's a professional. Yeah, he's, he's no mug. You know, he understands how these things work together, and he also understands about the the psychology behind bold and risky attacks. You know, yeah. he's been there and, and and done it before. He under he doesn't want to fight. You know, a Panzer division you know, bizarrely enough, is looking to avoid fighting. You know, it's looking to carve its way forward to create that psychological impact, yeah. which undermines the enemy's rear areas. If they have to fight, then they are in a very good position to do so. But if you look at 7th Panzer Division's advance, you know, he often strings them out over quite a long way. You know, they can be quite vulnerable. But guess what? You know, he finds that his command group of just a few armoured vehicles has two or 3,000 French personnel surrendering to them because he's just broken their will to fight by just being there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that sort of... And he gets yes, it. And, he you, gets and you have that, don't you, at, at Cambrai? And also, and the, and the one time they're kind of really tested, of course, is is, is Arras. But again, um, when push comes to shove, there he is on that hill, you know, by the farm, personally overseeing the firing of the 88mm anti-aircraft guns in an anti-tank role, etc., etc., stopping the Valentines and Matildas. Uh, and... Right at the forefront. I mean, it's 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 remarkable. I mean, I, some years ago, Lloyd, I did a um, a whole series of 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 novels. They were kind of sort of sharp meets Hornblower meets the Second World War, and I had a I had a fictional rifleman called Jack Tanner. And Jack Tanner, during the counterattack for Aris, he's a he's a crack shot because he's a son of a gamekeeper from the countryside, and so he's a crack shot. And he's got an Aldis scope which he can fit to his Lee Enfield, and he has a moment where he has Rommel in his sights on that on that high ground, and he could have taken him out, but but I can't remember what what reason I gave him for not pulling the pulling the trigger. But he but but anyway, he he doesn't. And um, but the the reason you can you can make up that little fictional story is because of course Rommel is there. He really was there on the hill, you know, helping to man the guns in the hour of need. You know, his interwar years was just packed with um, teaching um, opportunities. Um, you know, rather than being on the staff, he, he taught officer cadets and uh, German officers. And the, the clear message that he tried to get across to those officers is work out where the decisive point is and be there. That's so interesting. Now, sometimes it? it will be 20 or 30 miles behind the line. Sometimes it will be right on the boundary of your division or your, your platoon and the company. 
sometimes it'll be right in the thick of action. You've got to work out where it is yeah. and you've got to be there and make the changes that are required to make that decisive point yeah. more important than anywhere else. And he pushes that to the extreme in trying to get, develop competencies in people that um, allow them to do that. And of course, it is something about personal courage. But it's also about understanding the battlefield, understanding how not only your troops tick, but also the enemy, you know, what they're thinking. He would never call himself an intellectual, but he, he understood warfare. He understood at least the sort of tactical, to your point, element of warfare. Yeah. Um, I do agree, though, that when he gets into sort of operational and strategic echelons, um, I think he's rather out of his depth. He doesn't get the prioritisation and the complexity at that level. Um, but at the level we're talking about in 1940, yeah, he's... He's a real master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I don't dispute that at all. I, I, I think it's really, really clear. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he gets gets sent over in February 1941 uh, over to North Africa. Uh, you know, and that's where the legend is born, isn't it? Yeah, quite so. Um, we've got to remember, I think, that the, the toll that all of this is playing on him. There is this underlying current that by the time he gets to North Africa, that he's just beginning to sort of flourish. Well, there's a question mark, I think, yeah, over that. We've already discussed, you know, whether he's already reached his peak. But in terms of his mental resilience, how much he's taking on, the responsibility, whether he's over-promoted, I think also his personal health. You know, he goes to North Africa with some quite debilitating uh, illnesses, particularly a stomach complaint that is really going to undermine him and his ability to command. Has he got? Has he got something like? I mean, has he got something like Crohn's disease or something like that? Because that's where. Yeah, it, yeah, maybe it like seems to be undiagnosed in a very sort of 1940s sense, a disorder of the stomach, and you never, you know, you never read anything else as to a more precise diagnosis. You know, it starts um, in um, the First World War. He seems to get it under control in the interwar years, where he's under less stress. He's leading a less Spartan life. He's eating properly. He's exercising properly. He's sleeping as much as he needs. Put him on a battlefield, though, and you're beginning to see a man that's not looking after himself. And this is where I can begin to sort of suggest that we can say that his powers as a leader are diminishing. And also, a leader's got to look after himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, that's one of the first responsibilities, because if you're not there, um, you're not doing your job. Uh, an obvious sharp contrast to him is, is is Monty, who goes to bed at nine and no one's to disturb him until the following morning, you know, and, and he, you'd have to say that's an incredibly sensible approach. Yeah, quite so. And so, you know, we've got to put this sort of uh, move to North Africa in that sort of context. You know, he gets away with it at first, but as the stresses grow, um, he is under increasing pressure, and particularly after reversals. And he begins to really have a, a very difficult relationship with Berlin. We really begin to see the lack of attention he pays to himself, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. having great operational impact. Yeah, and and do you think that? It, so you do think that is clouding his judgment to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, you read his diaries and the diaries of of others and the letters they're writing home, and you know, once again, the boss is normally of such even temper is coming into the staff headquarters and shouting or sniping at someone in a way that's just not Rommel. You know, Rommel tends to be quite a consistent leader and we all love people who are consistent. Mm. Whether we might agree with them or disagree with them, we know where we stand with them. But if it's all bonhomie one moment and mm. then you're given a real ragging the next, you're not quite sure where you stand. And it seems to coincide with bouts of illness. Yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. doubt. Well, there's absolutely no question that he's in trouble in the summer of 1942. 
you know, he's sort of full of full of it all in 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 the end of May, isn't he? Nineteen nineteen forty two at the start of the yep. Gazala battle, and you know the flush of success at Tobruk and all the rest of it. But by the time he's got to Alam Halfa, you know the the six oil tankers haven't got through, and you know the mm. stress and strains and the pressure that's come under it. You know Mussolini's gone back home with his white charger. You know it's clear that he's not going to be getting into Cairo and Alexandria and the Suez Canal and the Middle East oil fields beyond, etc., etc., etc. There's been so much yeah. level of expectation on that happening so the come down is obviously huge so psychologically that's obviously going to play its part plus if you add in him being celiac Crohn's disease whatever his stomach complaint is and not looking after yourself yes you can see that that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty dodgy cocktail um that's going to play its part and of course that's why he's not there in you know when the battle of alamein second battle of alamein opens on the 23rd of of, of October 42. You know, he's not there because he's at home having health care, isn't he? And he goes back out that, again, that, even when he's not better. He's sort of bought his own public image. You know, he's been built up into this great star, you know, Hitler's general with all of the accolades that go with yeah, it. The, the, and, the British goggles on his on his cap and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, and it's beginning to unravel and that must have hurt, yeah. you know, and that's one of the reasons why he's saying, well, you're backing me as a person. Why aren't you backing me in North Africa with resources can help me help you to to win the war. Yeah. And they're saying, well, Ronald, don't you understand? You know, we're also fighting on a thousand mile front in uh, in the east. You know, you are not a priority at the moment. And he, he loses an awful lot of, I think, energy, mental and physical, trying to find a battle that I don't think he's He's never going to win. You know, he might get a, a few more tanks, a few more aircraft, a few more men, but he's never going to get what he wants. Well, he, he, he might get all those things, but, but, but he's, he's not going to get the shipping to deliver them. That's the big problem, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the crucial yeah. bit. That is the issue for, for the Germans especially. And, to, and, and the, well, the Axis forces in North Africa is they've got everything they've that they're bringing into that theatre has to come across the Mediterranean. They don't have access to the world's oceans. They don't have access to a huge shipbuilding uh, um, industry. They just don't have it. So once you start chipping away at those bigger ships, they've gone and they're they're not coming back again. You can't replace them with, with sort of, 40 billion Liberty ships. I mean, they just don't have that. They don't have the know-how. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the resources. They just, it's just not happening. So your shipping is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which is less efficient. Having left, let Malta off the hook, you know, you've kind of, that, that's a big kind of own goal. And suddenly you're in a pickle, which you, you can't get, get out of. And, and once the, the, the counterattack dream in Tunisia fails, he knows it's all over. And yet Hitler's absolutely refusing to counter that and sending ever more supplies into Tunisia. And he recognises that as completely pointless, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And I think that this is the beginning of the end of his uncritical relationship with Hitler. You know, it's probably started a little bit before that, as we've discussed with um uh, Rommel's attempt to sort of get reprioritization for um, various resources that he needs and, and the shipping conundrum as he sees it. Um, but by the time that Hitler is reinforcing what he sees as an inevitable defeat in North Africa, he's beginning to really wonder what Hitler is as a strategist. You know, where is this war going and what is in, indeed my role in it? Yep. You know, am I going to be given another command position? Um, if so, where is it going to be? Is it going to be in the Mediterranean? Um, what is Hitler doing um, potentially um, with the Atlantic War? You know, there's a job to be done there. Am I going to be sent there? And there's this period from, I suppose, late winter 1943 through to the early summer of 
where is German strategy? Where is Rommel? And there's a clamour, I think, to, to bring Rommel back in some way. Um, you know, Rommel, Rommel has been taken away from, from North Africa. Um, I suppose to almost save Rommel from the ignominy of defeat there, in a yeah. sense, and to reinvent him for, for something else, to, to, to give the German people hope yeah. that where there is a Rommel, there is something to believe yeah, in. Yeah, maybe. And uh, Rommel perhaps doesn't know where that's going to be. Yeah, it would certainly been better for Rommel if it had been him rather than von Arnim captured in Camp Bonn, yeah. I have to say, in Tunisia. But so, but anyway, you know that doesn't happen. He's back in he's back in in Germany, and then he gets given Army Group B. And the plan, of course, is is that he will have sway. He'll be the number of the Generalissimo in in Italy once it comes to it. But of course, Kassering wins that particular battle by his staunch defence of Salerno and and insistence on fighting south of Rome and all the rest of it. But actually, the key the key ground, the Foggia airfields and and Taranto and Puglia. That's all gone, and that that's not coming back. So once that, I, I mean, my own view is is that once Foggia's gone, which is the, the single most important bit of real estate in the southern half of Italy, once that's gone, there's actually no real point for the Germans fighting south of Rome, apart from the prize of, of keeping Rome. But but it makes much more sense to me to to do the original plan, which is to hold the Pisa Rimini line, which is a, where the, where the mountains really are from coast to coast. Uh, and and you know your supply lines are much shorter. That that seems to me to be more sense. I mean, I wonder what your view is on that. Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree. Um, and you you need to perhaps put this into the context of you know how much Hitler has sway now over some of these key decisions um, uh, over over the professionals. You know whether it's the Eastern Front or whether it's um, Italy, we begin to see the Germans holding increasing amounts of land and expending huge amounts of resources for something that militarily it's not particularly um, obvious what they're trying to achieve. Holding ground for ground's sake, holding Rome, as you say, because it is the capital city. But, but what sort are of they, so what? what I mean, you know, to there's achieve? no industry yeah. there. There's no real benefit to it. You know, their big, their big problem is is, is comms and, and, and how you get from A to B and supplies. You know, it's, it's always been mm. their problem, the German problem, right from the word go. So how, how do you do it when you're, you know, you're in Europe, you're landlocked, you don't have world access to the world's oceans. Where, where do you get your supplies from? So you want to kind of keep it as as... as as basically as, as as clean and simple as you possibly can. And there's no question that manoeuvring through Italy is incredibly difficult. Even if you're on the defence, mm. you've still got to get it to the Gustav line, mm. south of mm. Rome or whatever. You, you know, it, it's, mm. it's a crazy... Um, and, and because they're so paranoid about our outflanking, they continually occupy the northern part of Italy anyway. So why not just put all your... You know, all your forces in in one bag at the kind of northern end of Italy. Hold on to the the Po Valley for sure, but but and deny that to the Allies. But then your lines of communication are so much shorter. I mean, I, I think it's crazy. But anyway, be that as it may, Rommel loses that particular battle. He's kicked out of that one. He's no longer an Army Group B. Becomes Army Group B in in Normandy and in, in in Northwest Europe and the rest. I suppose is is kind of history to a certain extent. But I, I think it's fascinating that that later stage of it. I mean, I was quite a latecomer to coming to to Admiral Ruger's um, diary, which is just fascinating. So he's a he's a for for those who don't know, Ruger is um he's his kind of sort of He's on Rommel's headquarters at the at La Roche Guillon, which is his headquarters of Army Group B in Normandy, and it's just on the kind of banks of the Seine. And so it's on the kind of hinge of Norman of Normandy, really, of that northwest part of France, um, just as it sort of turns the corner up towards 
you know, Le Havre and Dieppe and all the rest of it. And Ruger keeps a diary of all that kind. And what you get is a you get such a fascinating picture of Rommel in that that stage. You know, Rommel's also writing back to Lucy, his wife, and you know, got his own account and everything, but but his own diary. But but again, he comes across as a very kind of sort of likable fellow, doesn't he? Kind of thoughtful, humane for the most part. Um, yeah, and you know, part of this is because he's got another life outside the army. Yeah, you know, he does seem to be very attached to his family and his his son and his, you know his wife in particular. Um, and we, we know we need to remember that I think that you know command the higher up the chain you go, the more lonely it gets. Yeah, but he sort of grounds himself with with his family, and you know we can criticise him for for going home at key moments. You know, as undoubtedly we will. You know, on the eve of of D-Day, but you know what? Um, that is part of what Rommel is as a commander. He will try to find the time, whether it's the ideal time or not, um, in retrospect, to, to go back to see his son and his wife, um, because it is so very, very important to him, um, not as a soldier, but as a man, as a father, as someone who is in the most extraordinary circumstances and needs that emotional support that he's not getting from anywhere else. We forget yeah, that. No, I, 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 yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. But but um, on top of that, you've also got the fact that the reason he goes back to back home is because he wants to appeal to Hitler for the kind of totally unacceptable decision that there's, there's, there's been made about the about who has the control of the armoured units in you know, is it von Treppenberg yeah. as Panzer Group commander, or is it, or is it Rommel as Army Group B commander? And of course, we all know that the 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 Hitler has fudged this one; that he's not really come up with a decent answer, and and he's come up with a compromise which is absolutely hopeless. And the reason he's going is to try and plead with Hitler face to face one last time to persuade him to give him complete control of the armored units. It, it's coincidental, you know, and that takes him to, to, to get to Berkisgarden, that takes him past Ulm, so you might as well drop in on your ha- uh, on home. And don't forget, of course, that the weather is absolutely dreadful and no one in their right mind would attempt a cross-channel invasion in that weather. So I, I, kind of, I sort of, you know, I, I get why he why he does it. I, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. what you're saying absolutely comes into it, but at the same time, I also think he wouldn't have gone home had it not been for... The attempted impassioned oh, plea. No, no, I, I, you're absolutely right. But I, you know, I, I emphasise that point because we can often forget the draw of of other influences, um, family among them. But you're right. I suppose any any leader, any commander who has come up through a system, and of course, all armies or most armies tend to grow their own leaders, are used to a certain amount of autonomy. And I think that when Rommel is at his best, he's got a very close team of trusted leaders. Yeah in circumstances that he really feels that he's got a very strong handle on and he can really provide very strong influence in. By the time we get to his command of an army group where the complexities are just huge, he's working with people that are ever-changing, people he doesn't trust, he doesn't really have a good, strong relationship with. And I think this is when we begin to see his command and leadership skills fray at the edges. He's not a great diplomat. He is prone to outbursts. Um, he's happy to challenge people to the point where they really, really don't like him and will do anything but to give in to this man. 
And I think that that has a massive implication for what he can achieve in in that position. Yep. By 1944, he doesn't play the he doesn't do the the kind of real politics. Not well, at, not at all, and he never has done. But it's not been so important. Yeah. But now we really begin to see the implications of of him not having those skills that perhaps others might have. And his career comes to an end because yet again he's putting his his he's putting himself in the line of danger. He's he's travelling around in daylight, having come mm. back from a you know what he would consider a very important um, senior commander meeting. Um, gets shot up by Canadian Spitfires. Again, incredibly lucky to to be alive after that, frankly. Um, right. But, but he does survive. And then he's the scapegoat and he's implicated in the plot post-Stauffenberg on, uh, in July 1944. And, and he's given that horrible choice, isn't he? I mean, what, what, a, what a terrible thing to have to confront, I think. He, he's visited and told... Either you take this pill now and you can have a death, you know, you can have a funeral as a hero or we'll put you on trial. You will be guilty and you'll be stripped of everything and so will your family. And so he's got kind of 10 minutes yep. to decide. And of course, he does what you'd expect him to do and he takes the pill. But, but yeah, no, quite so. And there's that interregnum between him being strafed and very badly wounded and him having to make that, that terrible decision where he's trying to like put his house in order. He's trying to you know, write down statements of all the difficulties he had over the past few yeah. years, why he hadn't been successful, trying to place himself in a wider context of competing demands on his time. And um, do, do, do you think he knows that this is where I, it's going to I, end? I, I, I think he's got a very strong, just rereading, you know, I, I've read what he'd, he's written about North Africa and afterwards during this period or many times, but it was only really when I got to sort of understand him and in, could interpret it in a different Quite way that I began to think, hang on, what he's, what he's actually doing here is he's, he's writing one last view of a man that probably isn't going to survive the war. You know, it can easily be read like that. If somebody had told me that he was going to, um, you know, executed by Hitler, it's the sort of thing that one would write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, also, isn't it? Because we're, we're, because when the when the two turn up and, and and give him this choice, of course he, he's he's brave as an ox and takes it on the on the chin. But there is a sort of you do get the impression there's a kind of sort of I've been expecting you kind of yeah. And my my affairs are in order, and I'm I'm ready for this. I've 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 said my goodbyes. I've been with my family for the last few months. Um, I'm ready. It's still a terrible end, isn't it? It it just whichever way you look at it, it just it's it's it still just feels all wrong and and it shouldn't have been that way. That's how I always feel about it. You know, I I, I think you know, and and the and the naysayers will point out that yeah, but you know, he didn't fight on the Eastern Front. You know, he was Hitler's bodyguard, all this kind of stuff. But I've got to say, there's nothing that I've ever read or come across that suggests that that he was anything other than a fundamentally decent human being even though he was a kind of commander on the wrong side, so to speak, you know, and, and I think, I think you can, I think you can make that distinction. I, I, I really do. I, I do think it, I don't think it's a kind of contradiction in terms that you're a senior commander in the, in the, within the Wehrmacht under the Nazi rule. You're, you're implicated because of your position, but I still think that means it doesn't mean that you can't be a decent, fundamentally decent human being. No, I, I wouldn't disagree with a, with a word of that. And, and ultimately, you know, I'm, drawn to uh, Rommel as a very professional soldier, but also as a man. As a man, probably more so, if you go back to the other two characters in my book, you know, Montgomery and Patton, um, I 
I related to more than than those two. Um, yeah, you know, there was certainly something that that made me think. Not only would I follow Rommel in most of the circumstances in in which he was commanding, but actually, you know, I'd like to to meet you and know more about you and have conversations with you. You know, obviously, I'd like that with with Patton and Monty as well. But I don't think I'm just drawn to their personalities as much. There was something seductive and um, uh, certainly inspirational about Rommel. Yeah. That X factor yeah. that he had. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end it. Uh, Lloyd, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Really, really, really interesting. Uh, so there you have it. Erwin Rommel, uh, an hours-long dissection. But, um, yeah, pretty good one, I think, that. Thanks, James, very much. Really enjoyed well, that. And uh, if anyone wants to know a little bit more, The Commanders, The Leadership Journeys of George Patton, Bernard Montgomery, and Erwin Rommel um, is... Uh, well, came out last summer it's a, you can get it anywhere amazon waterstones whatever you want but anyway it's out there and um i, I read it in proof stage i thought it's absolutely fascinating um and i can't recommend it more uh lloyd thank you very much thank you to everyone for listening cheerio for now